0: Hello there. Thanks so much for listening to the show. We want to hear what you think about Ripple. Please help us out by filling out a short anonymous survey at ripplepodcast.org backslash survey. That's ripplepodcast.org backslash survey.
1: I had been on the Gulf for weeks, listening to coastal residents, listening to their version of the Deepwater Horizon story. And if their version was a song, these words would be the chorus. Out of sight, out of mind. Out of sight, out of mind. Out of sight, out of mind. It was the refrain of my trip, It echoed from interview to interview. I heard it in Barataria Bay.
2: It's out of sight, out of mind.
1: I heard it from Mike on Company
3: Canal. Out of sight, out of mind. And Norman. I mean, yeah, it's out of sight and out of mind.
1: Out of sight, out of mind is a shorthand. It seems to sum up what these folks now, in the present day, believe about BP and the federal government's approach to cleaning up the spill. It's their answer to the question, why? was Corexit, used. From Western Sound and APM Studios, I'm Dan Leone, this is Ripple. Maybe the most unexpected place I heard the words, out of sight, out of mind, was in the office of a state politician.
4: I'm uh, Billy Nungesser, and I'm Lieutenant governor of the great state of Louisiana.
1: If the BP oil spill hadn't happened, Billy Nungesser might not be Louisiana's Lieutenant Governor. His political career took off due in part to his efforts in the aftermath of the spill. Louisiana doesn't have counties, it has parishes. Back in 2010, Nungesser was parish president of Plaquemines Parish. And he remembers the exact moment he learned about the blowout. His mind went to Venice, an unincorporated town not far from the southernmost
4: tip of Louisiana. I was at home when I got the call. And uh, so I called Venice to uh, see what we could do to assist and uh, couldn't uh, get an answer. So I drove down to Venice that night and could see the glow in the sky. So you saw the fire? Yeah. Nungesser had some experience in cleaning
1: oil from marshes. Because crude would sometimes wash up after thunderstorms. There's a lot of oil drilling in the Gulf. So small amounts of oil in the water isn't uncommon.
4: After every thunderstorm, the oil would appear along the shore. And the Finland fish would be stuck in that oil. So first light, those pelicans and those birds would start dying for those fish. It was a magnet and they'd get covered in oil and die.
1: Nungesser and other locals would use shop vacs to suck up the oil so pelicans wouldn't get stuck. And they tried to do the same thing during the BP spill.
4: We went out and vacuumed up that oil along the shore. Volunteers. We were shut down. Pulled all the boats in to inspect for life jackets, registration, shut us down for three days, and watched hundreds of birds die because they wanted to stop us from picking up that oil. Couldn't understand that.
1: Nungesser says the Coast Guard put a stop to the volunteer efforts over concerns about them needing life jackets and fire extinguishers. But he didn't want to stop using the shop vax. He wanted to scale up this method. And then we asked for these jack-up boats. Jack-up boats have these long legs which stabilize the vessel and then lift it above sea level. Just imagine a square platform on stilts hovering above the water. Nungesser wanted to put crews on these boats with boom to trap the oil and vacuum equipment to suction it up.
4: Uh, We told no many times.
1: Nungesser says the Coast Guard and BP opposed his plan. So he decided to play the media a bit. He got himself on CNN and night after night stood beside Anderson Cooper and threw shade at the authorities. He publicly called for one of Unified Command's leaders. Coast Guard Admiral Thad Allen, to resign. Nungesser wanted to get the attention of President Obama. Eventually, he did. Nungesser was allowed into a meeting at a unified command station.
4: The president walked in and said, "Billy, you've been pretty upset on TV. He said, I thought we were on the same team. I said, we are, Mr. President. He said, well, what, what, do, you, what do you want to do? I said, we want to put these jack-up boats out there.
1: According to Nungesser, it's President Obama who instructed Thad Allen to move ahead with his jack-up boats.
4: When he left, he looked back, he said, Now, we're okay, Billy? I said, Yeah, Mr. President, we're okay. He said, Well, call me before you call Anderson Cooper.
1: Nungesser says his jack-up boat plan didn't move forward like he'd hoped.
4: Now, we got three of them set up. And as we tried to find the other jack-up boats, we heard the Coast Guard had leased them all, but they weren't putting them to work. Why?
1: Nungesser doesn't know why, but there's some important context to know for what was going on here. He wasn't the only person with proposals for cleaning up the spill. In 2010, BP actually launched a crowdsourcing effort, seeking ideas from the public, and pitches started pouring in. Even the actor Kevin Costner got in on the action.
5: I believe this machine made over 12 years ago with all the care and science and money that I could throw at it is one major solve in this giant puzzle that will get people back to work.
1: This is Costner giving testimony before a congressional hearing. The machine he's pitching was built by a company he owned. It was designed to separate oil from water. But, critically, the oil could still be sold afterwards.
5: It may seem an unlikely scenario that I am the one delivering this technology at this moment in time, but, where from, but from where I am sitting, it is equally inconceivable that these machines are not already in place.
1: BP saw fit to purchase 32 of Costner's company's machines for $52 million. But there are conflicting reports about whether or not they were ever used. Some reports from the Times say they weren't used because they didn't work. Some say they weren't used because by the time the machines got to the Gulf, the oil was already dispersed. In all, Unified Command received around 123,000 proposals in just a few weeks. This guy said, oh, well, you've got uh, oil on the water. Retired search and rescue Coast Guardsman Brent Massey, the man who helped coordinate the search for the missing crewmen after the blowout, Recalled getting some ideas from the public. Well, here's what you do. I just did this in my kitchen. I had a bucket and I had water
5: in it, and I dropped a sponge in, it and the sponge absorbed all the oil. So all you have to do is just go out there and you know
1: drop a bunch of sponges, and it'll absorb all the oil. It's like, oh
5: my gosh, you, like
1: you, you don't understand the scope of this. <laughs> so maybe Nungesser's jack up boat plan wasn't a good idea, or maybe it was, and it was just lost in a sea of other proposals that weren't worth considering. It's hard to know. But to Nungesser, BP and the authorities' response to the spill fell short.
4: A lot of promises were made in public, and when we got out there, nothing we talked about ever happened. It was obvious they did not want to use anything outside of their plan.
1: And their plan largely involved Corexit, dispersants, nearly 2 million gallons of dispersants.
4: I truly believe that was done because out of sight, out of mind, they didn't want you to see that oil. How do you sink it and then clean it up? In 2010, Unified
1: Command was in this serious predicament. Incredible amounts of oil were surging towards coastlines, and oil reaching coastlines could have severe and long-lasting consequences. So it was a legitimate priority to prevent as much oil as possible from washing up on shore And this is one reason why Unified Command said they were deploying dispersants — to save coastlines. But the way dispersants accomplished this was another point of contention between Unified Command and many coastal residents. Corexit was advertised to the public as a chemical that would break up oil into smaller droplets, which would then be diluted or biodegraded or consumed by microbes. As part of that process, droplets of oil would disappear from the surface of the ocean and fall into the water column below. Nungesser and many of the coastal residents I spoke to believe this function was a primary draw of using Corexit. Here's Mike Arsenal from Company Canal.
2: You know, because when BP came in, they dispersed the oil. Dispersing it,
3: they sunk it
1: and former cleanup worker Caleb Bro,
6: I think with dispersant, what it was doing, it would sink it. So to me, out of sight, out
1: of mind. Many coastal residents I spoke to believe BP used dispersants in such large amounts not only to protect shorelines, but also to protect their public image, to make the spill appear less severe than it was. And remember, Corexit wasn't only sprayed on the surface of the ocean, Unified Command also lowered a giant pipe to the bottom of the ocean and pumped thousands of gallons directly into the leaking wellhead, a method that had never been attempted at a depth of 5,000 feet. So all this spraying of Corexit caused real friction between BP and many who made their living in the fishing industry. I've got a piece of audio that illustrates this friction, an argument from 2010 between a BP rep and a shrimp buyer.
7: We do want to clean up this oil. Someone is going to have to explain to me why BP would not want to clean up this oil.
2: This well, was not... This war is this... cost-effective for y'all to come at night and sink the son of a bitch. When the oil's coming around, y'all tend to playin' and y'all fucking sink. Right. That's what y'all doing. Come on, man. Let's quit playing over here and tell the truth. What do you think, we stupid? And then we're not stupid. Owner. Y'all putting, them, y'all putting them all on the bottom of our fishing ground. Y'all not only messing me up now, y'all messing me up for the rest of my life.
1: Betsy Shepard, Ripple's senior reporter, and I, were both struck by how furious this man sounded. We were curious to know how this man's fishing grounds had been impacted over the last decade. So we did some digging and figured out who he was. His name's Dean Blanchard. Working? He's a shrimp buyer. Betsy got a tour of his shrimp processing facility in Grand Isle, Louisiana. Boats drive up, drop off their shrimp, Dean buys them, processes them, ships them to local restaurants, and elsewhere.
0: Can you just can you describe what we're looking at right now? The water, where are we?
2: Well, that's what's called Bayou Regal. You see these boats across, that's when the hurricane ended up over there. They still never picked them up yet. but
1: Like a lot of places in South Louisiana, you see sunken boats in Grand Isle, abandoned casualties of
2: hurricanes.
0: That's not one of your boats, huh? Right there? That's underwater?
2: No, that wasn't mine. None of them are my boats. The last boat I had, my fishing boat, my sport fishing boat, the house fell on it. But a hurricane.
1: <laughs> there are people who have moved on from the oil spill. Thirteen years removed, they've grieved, they've calmed down they're not as angry about it anymore. Dean Blanchard doesn't seem like one of those people.
2: When I realized they didn't want to pick up the hole, and I really got mad, and, you know, I mean, we wanted them to pick up the hole. I mean, hey, you made the mess, clean up your frickin' mess. That's simple, you know? I mean, y'all got the money, clean it up. But then it just don't look good, you know? Out of sight, out of mind. Put it on the bottom, sink it. And once we realized they were sinking it on our fishing grounds, I mean, why would you take something that's on top of the water and put it on the bottom of the ocean where all life begins, you know? So we knew right then and there we had a serious problem.
1: Dean's fear in 2010 was that the dispersed oil would sink all the way to the bottom of his fishing grounds. He explained to Betsy why he thought this possibility was so threatening to his livelihood.
2: The shrimp got to be able to bury to hide, I mean, he, to protect himself. So he's not going to go somewhere where he can't bury and protect himself. Shrimp
1: hang out at the bottom of the ocean. They prefer areas with soft mud and sand rich with organic matter. And they like to hide in the sand when they feel threatened.
2: You know, the shrimp just quit coming. They quit coming. They, they go to places where they've got a better chance of surviving.
1: Dean thinks the shrimp that didn't die left.
2: It was poison. You know, nothing's going to go where, where it's poison. You know, animals got a, something in them that they know when something's wrong. You know, if you got a tsunami coming, the animals run first. If you see the an animal's running, you better run too. You know, I mean, they just know. That's mother nature. But Dean says his
1: shrimp business eventually started recovering.
2: Last year was the best year we had since the spill. We probably did 65 percent Dean
1: reports getting 65% of the shrimp yields he would get before the oil spill. So what caused the improvement? He credits nature.
2: The hurricanes cleaned up some stuff and, you know, that's what we need. We need hurricanes to come in there and clean it up. It's a shame to say that you got to destroy all your buildings and your houses and all, but to get the shrimp to come back and clean up the bottom, and you got to have a big, big wave action We need about three or four more hurricanes and maybe it'll be cleaned up by then. Though shrimp yields have improved, according
1: to Dean, not everything has. Some species of fish have never
2: come back. For 30 years, I bought fish over here in the wintertime. 30 years straight, we had so much fish, we had to stop the boats from catching fish. The last 10 years, we ain't got none. No more. So whose fault is it? I blame BP. No, I don't blame BP. I blame the United States government for allowing BP to do what they did.
1: I hear a lot nowadays about the erosion of trust in institutions. How dangerous this is, how destabilizing it is for American society.
2: Uh, I ain't got much use for the government. I'm going to tell you that right now. I mean, it's a joke. It's a joke. Politicians are a joke, government's a joke.
1: It's rare that I hear someone pinpoint exactly how they lost
2: this trust.
0: Did, did, did you always feel that way? Or was this like, no, you know? No, no, I was used to like... be
2: proud to be American until I seen what BP got away with. The one that messed everything up is in charge. I mean, I lost all respect for the government after that.
1: Government wasn't the only institution Dean lost faith in.
2: Uh, scientists got all that money and, and everything was going to be alright and all that. That's bullshit, that's bullshit. I mean, they got no use for scientists, neither. <laughs> I mean, they, they, uh, they just lie straight to your face. I mean, it's money, it's all money. Everybody's worried about money. Nobody can tell the truth.
1: One truth, from Dean's perspective, is what he sees happening to his community.
2: I'm telling you, people are dying over here. I'm I'm not no doctor, I can't prove it, but I mean, I'm watching people that, too many people's dying. It's not right. It's not right, I can tell you that. It's not right.
1: When I listen to Dean talk about his crisis of trust in institutions, then I listen to figures within those same institutions lamenting the crises. I'm reminded of this lesson my father tried to instill in me as a kid. This phrase he would often repeat, trust is earned. It's estimated that 200 million gallons of crude oil spilled into the Gulf in 2010, and that only between 17 and 25% of that was recovered. As for the rest, some of that still remains on the seafloor today. There isn't a consensus on the exact amount. We'll be right back.
0: Let's see what we got here. I love to cook. It's one of my great joys. But when I'm working on stories under deadline, I don't have time to cook meals. And Factor is the perfect solution because the food is delicious, it's healthy and ready to go in just two minutes. It's also a fraction of the cost of takeout. You'll have over 35 options to choose from every week, including calorie smart, protein plus, and keto. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Head to factormeals.com ripple50 and use code ripple50 to get 50% off. That's code Ripple50 at factormeals.com slash Ripple50. All right, I am set for the week.
1: Ripple comes to you from APM Studios. APM stands for American Public Media. We're a public media show. What that means is we're driven only by the mission to find the truth and bring it to you. And you can donate to support us in that mission. In fact, donations are one of the ways that we're evaluating the success of this first season of Ripple. So if you like what you're hearing, chip in any amount that feels right for you. Just go to ripplepodcast.org slash donate.
5: Each of us all across this great land has a stake in maintaining and improving environmental quality
1: we're all governed by thousands of these obscure policies, regulations, rules, and laws.
5: Clean air and clean water, the wise use of our land, the protection of wildlife and natural beauty, parks for all to enjoy. These are part of the birthright of every American.
1: A lot of environmental laws that promote these ideas are written, put on the books, and then they languish for years without being updated. Sometimes we don't become aware of these obscure, antiquated laws until we're in trouble.
5: Eighteen of the major environmental proposals which I put forward a year ago have still not received final action by the Congress.
1: President Richard Nixon established the Environmental Protection Agency through executive order in 1970. He did this partly out of frustration. Critical laws regulating water pollution hadn't been updated since 1948 he chastised Congress for not taking action. The environmental
5: agenda now before the Congress includes laws to deal with water pollution, pesticide hazards, ocean dumping, excessive noise, and many other environmental problems. These problems will not stand still for politics or for partisanship.
1: And Nixon got results In 1972, Congress passed an important law called the Clean Water Act. Under that law, the EPA was required to create an obscure piece of regulation called the National Contingency Plan, a set of guidelines to follow in the event of a toxic spill. Post-deepwater, millions of coastal residents' lives and livelihoods were at the mercy of this obscure EPA policy.
0: The contingency plan (laughs) the friggin' contingency plan.
1: Marine toxicologist Ricky Ott had lived through the 1989 Exxon Valdez oil spill, which ravaged her small village in Alaska. In 1994, the EPA updated the NCP to reflect the lessons learned from that spill.
0: EPA is the keeper of the National Contingency Plan, which is our nation's emergency response plan on oil spill and chemical disasters.
1: After the BP oil spill, the largest oil spill in U.S. history, Ricky Ott expected the EPA to update the National Contingency Plan, as they did after Exxon Valdez.
8: Pressure started, as it often does, at a political level.
1: This is Claudia Polsky, She's a clinical professor of law at UC Berkeley Law School, where she directs their environmental law clinic. Her role in all this will become clear in a minute.
8: Dr. Ricky Ott petitioned the U.S. EPA and presented all this evidence for why the 1994 plan was out of date. She wrote this in 2012, and then EPA proceeded to do nothing.
1: Ricky Ott waited for action on the petition for two full years, and still no update to the NCP. So in 2014...
8: She went back to EPA with an even broader petition, and then EPA proceeded to do nothing.
1: EPA still failed to update the NCP, but there was some movement. In 2015, under the Obama administration, the EPA issued some proposed changes to the plan, but they never finalized them.
8: The clearest explanation is that the administration changed to the Trump administration. And with that, everything went in a completely deregulatory, pro-oil exploration direction.
1: And then Ricky Ott was fed up.
8: The EPA has
0: not updated the rules governing dispersant use since, uh, well, it's, we're going on 28 years right now. Now think about it. How'd you like to be assured and rest sleep at night in your home, knowing that your fire local fire department emergency plan and all their technology is 28 years old?
8: Right? It's just not a good idea.
1: So Ricky got herself a lawyer, and that lawyer was Claudia Polsky.
8: Frustrated, Dr. Ott assembled a coalition, and found our law clinic and said, we think we really need to sue EPA for not acting on our petitions.
1: In 2020, Ricky and Claudia sued the EPA on two grounds. Number one, they said the EPA was in violation of that Clean Water Act that Nixon got passed. Under the Clean Water Act, regulations need to stay current to protect the public from harm.
8: There's a facetious but pretty accurate thing that we say in the law sometimes, which is, if you don't have the facts, pound the law. If you don't have the law, pound the facts. And if you don't have either, pound the table. And in this case, EPA really does not have the facts on its side. EPA itself had acknowledged how much harm there was. We have Inspector General reports talking about how important it is to update the National Contingency Plan because it proved a failure in Deepwater Horizon. So they really didn't have the facts. It's very clear that the 1970s Congress that drafted the Clean Water Act would never have imagined that it was authorizing EPA to just sit on a decades-old plan after the biggest oil spill in U.S. history and its catastrophic response. And the judge said under those circumstances, EPA has effectively decided it is appropriate to update the plan. It just hasn't done it.
1: According to the judge, the EPA was illegally violating the Clean Water Act. The judge also said that legally, EPA couldn't just ignore concerned citizens. It didn't sufficiently respond. To Ricky's petitions.
8: So the judge said, EPA, what you did was illegal on two grounds. You didn't update this plan that you admitted needed to be updated, and the Clean Water Act says you must. And you essentially let get moldy these two citizen petitions rather than showing them the dignity of issuing them an answer within a reasonable amount of time.
1: Moving legislation in America is a marathon, not a sprint. After a decade of effort, Ricky Ott's pressure campaign on the EPA was successful.
8: So EPA was put on a court-ordered time frame. The judge said that by May 2023, EPA would be required to update the National Contingency Plan.
1: At the time I interviewed Claudia in early 2023, the EPA hadn't issued their update yet. Neither she nor I knew for sure what they would ultimately decide. And the range of outcomes was vast. Let's imagine we live in a perfect world, which we clearly don't. But um, what would be your best-case daydream scenario here?
8: Well, here I'm channeling my clients because I, I really am trying to give voice to their desires, but they have made very plain that they would like an end to the use of chemical dispersants
1: their best-case scenario would be for the EPA to ban or seriously limit the use of Corexit and all dispersants. But there's one problem with banning dispersants. There are no surefire mechanical methods to clean a spill the size of deep water. There wasn't in 2010, and there still isn't today. So short of a ban, They'd like to see significant geographic restrictions on the use of dispersants and dispersants subjected to much more rigorous testing.
8: A big theme is that the NCP requires very little in the way of toxicity testing of products before they come to market. There's very little pre-market testing required to determine, will these things kill people? I mean, in Deepwater Horizon, which was the biggest domestic use of dispersant chemicals ever, you're talking about somewhere between one and two million gallons of dispersant chemicals alone that were used, and that is equivalent to the sixth largest oil spill in US history by volume. So you're talking about just a massive amount of chemical use, you know, something that almost feels like chemical warfare on the ocean and coastal inhabitants. And so that's something that was legal under the NCP. And that's what our clients want to change. So we're waiting to see what EPA does.
1: Claudia's worst case scenario would be essentially ornamental changes to the NCP leaving intact the same guidelines that led to confusion and calamity in 2010. Interestingly, Claudia believes that although they've scored a key legal victory against the EPA, the legal battle is only part of the fight.
8: The legal system can only get you so far. And what litigation really does is ultimately probably more valuable is provide a way of telling a story and creating issue awareness and a discrete set of events. You know, you file a case and that's a news event and you get a ruling and that's an event and then an agency has to do something and it does it and that's a news event and every one of these opportunities to educate the public and to educate elected officials is really what ultimately makes system change. It's not usually just what happens in the courtroom.
1: Hearing this, it struck me that 13 years after the blowout, there was still a fight to control the Deepwater Horizon story. Claudia was giving interviews to people like me in hopes of pushing that story and all its victims back into the public consciousness. She wanted as much scrutiny and pressure as possible on the EPA as it weighed its decision. The EPA, through its decade of inaction, demonstrated that perhaps they would have preferred this story and all those who lived it be forgotten. We'll be right back.
0: I want to tell you about another podcast to check out called Drilled. Drilled is a true crime podcast about climate change It's hosted by award-winning investigative journalist Amy Westervelt and reported by a team of climate journalists. The podcast investigates the various obstacles that have kept the world from responding to climate change. You can listen now to the latest episodes of Drilled wherever you get your podcasts. Let's see what we've got here. I love to cook. It's one of my great joys. But when I'm working on stories under deadline, I don't have time to cook meals. And Factor is the perfect solution because the food is delicious, it's healthy, and ready to go in just two minutes. It's also a fraction of the cost of takeout. You'll have over 35 options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Head to factormeals.com/ripple50 and use code ripple50 to get 50% off. That's code ripple50 at factormeals.com/ripple50. All right. I am set for the week.
1: By late April of 2023, It was just about time for me to leave the gulf. In those days, I caught myself thinking a lot about what the EPA's decision was ultimately going to be. I wondered if Ricky Ott was going to get what she wanted out of him. It occurred to me that if she did, it would be one of the few victories I'd heard about on the gulf. Damn near every story I heard was about loss in one way or another. And each person I talked to had their own way of handling that loss. You've had a lot of tragedy in, in your life, and I'm wondering, you know, if you can maybe take me through how you have survived these, these many things that you've gone through without losing your damn mind.
7: Well, first of all, trivial can't, can't be brought to my attention, you know.
1: This is Cherie Kerner. You heard from her in an earlier episode. Her husband, Frank Stewart, worked on the cleanup and died in 2018 of acute myeloid leukemia.
7: Anna is probably kind of like a um, doctor, you know, ends up getting a little callous, a little tougher. It just makes you resilient because there isn't really any other choice.
1: Did you and Frank ever have a conversation near the end uh, about how he was feeling, was he preparing himself, was he, uh, was he loving, was, you know, what, what was he thinking towards the end?
7: Well, he, um, Frank wasn't a cat person and I had a cat that uh, had shown up. She was a little kitten in the backyard. So I started feeding her and he would scat at her to try to chase her away. Cause he didn't want her to come in the house. So after he realized that he accepted that, um, you know, he was going to die, he said, well, I guess a cat's coming in the house. (laughs) So, (laughs) you betcha.
1: After Frank's death, Cherie launched Disappearing Victims, an awareness-raising campaign to shine a light on the deteriorating health of cleanup workers. That mission continues. Joey Yerkes, a cleanup worker from Destin, Florida, who you've heard from several times, had fallen seriously ill in late 2010. And he was faced with a very American predicament.
3: I had to make a decision as a father.
1: Medical bills were rapidly piling up. So on one hand, he could continue with expensive treatments and hopefully save his own life.
3: So that I can have a chance to spend time with my daughter and see my daughter? Or do I want to just leave all of this money that I made in investments for her, in the bank, whatever it may be, and just let this stuff kill me and then they can have all the money?
1: Joey believes, in some sense, the decision was made for him.
3: You know, I haven't really, there's only one other person in the world that I've talked about this with, and that's my daughter. Um, It's really hard for me to talk about too, but when I was really sick, I was in the hospital. I had a moment where I was in the hospital, and that was at my lowest point. Like, I was chemical pneumonia. My cup had runneth over. I was sick, and I went to the emergency room, and I was in the hospital. They didn't really know what to do with me. Um, But I was having some heart issues or something. I remember that. And I was kind of in and out of consciousness, right? And I had an experience while I was in the hospital. I'll just leave it at that. And it was enough to really enlighten me. But I knew from that experience, I knew right then at that moment that it wasn't my time to go. I knew that I knew then that my purpose was to stay alive for her. That's the moment I knew that.
1: Joey continued his treatments, and the two doctors who were seeing him made a recommendation.
3: They both agreed that, you know, at this point, you need to leave the Gulf um, or you're not going to get better. You know, you're just re exposing yourself and that kind of thing. Um, so I left.
1: Joey had spent decades fishing in the Gulf and was in love with his life on the Emerald Coast in Florida. But his doctors felt that the environment there was too toxic. So Joey moved to a small city in Georgia, about 200 miles away from the ocean. And there, he slowly recovered and dragged himself out of debt. Today, Joey regularly experiences vertigo, tinnitus, and neuropathy, which causes pain and numbness in the limbs. He's on a lot of medications. He doesn't sleep much. Joey is one of some 5,000 people who have individually filed lawsuits against BP, seeking compensation for what they believe are oil spill-related health problems. Um, In your case right now, do you have high hopes for it or no?
3: So, I long for the day that I can sit in front of a jury of my peers. That's been my goal. I want to get up on that stand and I want to sit in front of a jury of my peers. And I want to try my case in a court of law. I know I can win, but I don't think it's ever going to get to that. I really don't.
1: Joey's case is now pending. Caleb Bro, a former cleanup worker from Louisiana, who was diagnosed with lymphoma five years after the spill, is also waiting for his day in court. I worry about how powerful BP is,
6: how financially powerful they are, how Louisiana is known for those type of politics. Uh, yeah, I hope I'm proven wrong, but I just, with the cases that's been thrown out so far, it, it, it worries me. It's just something we're going to have to deal with. But I just don't want to be ignored by BP and those responsible, you know. I just want our voice to be out there, and I want them to just give us a chance, at least show us that they care
1: a little bit about us as individuals, you know. That's, That's all we ask. Caleb reports that after many rounds of chemo, he's in remission now. But the strain of lymphoma he has is incurable so it stays in my bloodstream. So it's gonna,
6: like, they call it kinda like flare-ups, like if it comes back, you just gotta kinda, you go through it again. I asked what it's like living with that knowledge. So it's a constant stress. Um, once you get cancer, that's a common occurrence is that you constantly feel like it's back because it's an unseen danger, right? You, know, you, you don't really know, it. look, I had it for five years or so in my body and I didn't even realize, like, I knew something was wrong, but I didn't realize how severe it was. And that's most people with cancer. A lot of people get diagnosed and it's too late. You know, so you always thinking about it. Um, And one thing it does, it definitely puts life into perspective for sure. Um, You worry about the littlest things when really you gotta gotta kinda get rid of those things and you look at what's important in your life. So it brings mortality into perspective for sure.
1: So I've left Louisiana and like Norman on Company Canal predicted, I didn't really want to leave. Uh, Betsy took off as well. She's back in California. Um, But I've got one more stop that I want to make before we kind of wrap this trip up because... So a bunch of people sued BP under that back-end litigation process, meaning they sued them on their own, um, separate of the big class action lawsuit. And for a while, I was under the impression that no one had won any of those lawsuits, that no one had gotten any money out of BP. But I've come to learn that that's, that's, not, that's not correct. Um, one of our sources, um, he, he got a settlement out of them. So, that was a surprise, right? But, what's really impressive to me is that he apparently managed to do this with a ninth grade education and by representing himself. So, I would very much like to know how he managed to get a settlement out of BP when when so many others uh, appear to be losing. And he actually lives kind of near the same mountain range that I live in, uh, the Blue Ridge Mountains. I'm on the North Carolina side and he is on the Tennessee side. So, um, yeah, we're Tennessee bound. We got one more stop to make before we wrap this up. Ripple is produced by Western Sound and APM Studios. It's created by me, Dan Leon, for Western Sound. Ben Adair is the executive producer. Erica Krauss is the executive producer for APM Studios. Ripple is written and hosted by me, Dan Leon. Betsy Shepard is the senior reporter and producer. Colin McNulty is the editor. Original music is composed by me, Sound design by me and Alex McGinnis. Alex mixed and mastered the show. Sarah Dealey and Stella Hartman are the associate producers. Research and fact-checking by Savannah Wright, with additional fact-checking by Betsy Shepard. Additional reporting by Haley Fox. Nick Ryan is APM Studios' Senior Production Manager. And the executives in charge for APM Studios are Joanne Griffith, Alex Schaffert, and Chandra Kavati. To learn more about what you've heard, visit our website at ripplepodcast.org.
2: At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Through Line wherever you get your podcasts.